Have you always thought he was really interesting? No. Actually, when he was alive, he had no charisma, as I remember. Uh, I was indifferent to him. I didn't hate him particularly. I just thought he was uh, a crook, you know, just, you know, he undermined the faith in American institutions. And he did this country a lot of damage in, in, in Watergate. And at that time, you know, I was very grateful to see him get out. Uh, Ford looked like a real hero until he pardoned Nixon. But, uh, you know, over time, he's a contradictory man and he's a fascinating individual when you study his life. The idealism that comes from uh, his mother and father, you know, the, which was always in conflict with his corruption, uh, is, it makes for a good character. His, uh, his anger at the world, his rage, uh, his emotional repression the inability to, you know, feel loved to, if, let, let's say that Pat loved him, of course, she said she did, but that there was not enough, there was something that was lacking, his daughters, whatever, it didn't seem to satisfy him, there was a, was a grimness, a discontent in him. Many times when I'm in the court of Oliver Stone, I know what the verdict is when I'm through. I don't know that you came down with a verdict <laughs> on Nixon. No, uh, I think, you know, it's support. It speaks for itself. You know, you you take from it what you will. It's me. You, you, you hear what I'm telling you? In my mind, I created it. The culture, I created it, and it's real. Don't you understand? Hello everyone, welcome to Struggle Session. I am your host, Leslie Lee III. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Jack Allison. Today we got a Tricky Dick double feature. Oliver Stone's 1995 follow-up to the hit JFK, Nixon. As well as Roger Altman's 1984 adaptation of the stage play of the same name, Secret Honor. Join us to discuss both these excellent films. He is a writer. You can find his new book, American Exception, Empire in the Deep State, at bookstores everywhere. He's also the host of the American Exception podcast, which explores state criminality, geopolitics, militarism, and the political economy of empire. Thank you so much for coming on. We're so excited to talk about your book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State, as well as the film Nixon by Oliver Stone, who has the blurb on your beautiful, beautiful book cover uh, designed by Abby Martin. Yeah, she did the artwork and Casey Moore did the graphic design. Uh, and he also was lucky enough to be doing the art for the uh, Drive My Car movie that just won an Oscar. So oh. I had a lot of people help me for the cover, and I'm really happy. I was obsessed that's awesome. about getting it to you know, be as good as it could be. So they they did say that's job. how you're supposed to judge a book, so I'm glad you got yep. a good one. A, a very brief sort of summary of how I came to write the book was I worked. I grew up in a political family, majored in political science, worked on political campaigns. I worked for Obama on his campaign, went to the inauguration, uh, the staff ball and everything, and uh, then when he ended up carrying on so many of Bush's policies and not doing things like putting Bush and Cheney in jail and along with the torture people and so on and bailing out Wall Street and 
overthrowing Honduras's government and Libya's government and all the Syria business, you know, uh, the dirty war there, I realized that there was some, that it wasn't a matter of uh, electing the right major party candidate to deal with the problems of the U.S. empire. And so I started to look at it deeper into this and I heard Oliver Stone go on Bill Maher and talk about this JFK book called JFK and the Unspeakable. And I read that book and it made me, I'd already read some books on the CIA, uh, like a book by Stephen Kinzer called Overthrow and All the Shaw's Men that he wrote. So I knew more than most, I was more radical on foreign policy than the other Obama staffers, but it wasn't really until he took over that like I became full on uh, aware of the just criminality of the U.S. empire. And so I started working in that vein. I went to graduate school um, with some advice from a Florida state professor named Lance DeHaven Smith, who wrote uh, about state crimes against democracy, talking about the Kennedy assassinations and the MLK assassination, uh, Iran-Contra, these other crimes that are committed by uh, seemingly legally immune forces high up in American society connected to the intelligence agencies uh, and there's, they really confound any uh, democratic understanding of the way that our system is supposed to work, the way the rule of law is supposed to work, the way democracy is supposed to work. And they give these hidden forces a veto power to act violently and then deny what they're actually doing after the fact, create cover stories about this that we can parse and you know, dissect for decades, like with the Kennedy assassination. And uh, the political science and social science in the United States uh, they don't have a way of dealing with the the sort of brutal reality of uh, life at the top. And it's not so much that the U.S. is uniquely terrible in this regard. It's just that empire is a, a gangster pursuit and you're not going to do it without being basically totally immoral and criminal. And uh, the U.S. is no exception. But because we have to pretend we're not criminal, then everything has to be done covertly and uh, this is a real problem. It's a real problem for his historians who use archival documents to make sense of things. But a lot of times the information is incomplete. So what if you're missing big parts of the story because of the you know covert state and so on? And so I really wanted to trace the evolution of the U.S. empire since the end of World War II and how it's evolved and changed and how it's how this sort of dark force has intervened in American politics at decisive moments to make sure that the trajectory of the U.S. empire was uh, along the lines of what the people with the most money and power wanted. And uh, it's been a procession of uh, sort of anti-democratic strokes of the state, you know, coup d'etat, coups d'etat, that have uh, destroyed American democracy and brought us to this point where uh, the ruling regime is illegitimate. It's hegemony over the international political political economy is faltering. And uh, it's a little frightening because uh, I think it's reasonable to be worried that these guys might just set off, uh, you know, nuclear Armageddon in an attempt to try to hold on to their control over the world. And somebody doing academic work should do something about this and try to illuminate all of these things and how we got to this point. And so I took it upon myself to, to do that. And that's how I, uh, why I decided to write this dissertation, which would probably disqualify me from tenure position <laughs> and uh, get it published. And don't so, worry. They're not doing tenure positions anymore. <laughs> you know, those, those aren't around anymore. So don't worry about it too much. I have a podcast because of, uh, it beats adjuncting. Podcasting is the new tenured position. And so, Aaron, you used a great word there that brings us right into our discussion of Nixon, uh, Oliver Stone's 1995 
gangster flick. People call, they call it a historical drama on IMDb, but it is not. It's like a gangster movie. It's it feels to me a bit like Scarface or like a Scorsese movie. This is like mm -hmm. a crime movie at the highest uh, levels. It's just a bunch of old white guys with faces just full of meat the ugliest collection of <laughs> actors that has ever been yeah. assembled pug-faced men fleshy pug-faced men of course anthony hopkins sir anthony hopkins as richard uh nixon himself richard nixon is always of uh, this larger than life figure but and that's why this movie is so important because when i was a kid and certainly jack when you were a kid nixon was kind of like a cartoon character like it was sure. a joke it was yeah. like oh he got I, and I never understood like why it was a big deal it's like oh there was a break in and they stole some stuff and they like yeah. got rid they fired the president for that like it, it was like more of a watergate was more of like a joke by the time we we were also kind of like well you know this was like the 90s and so we were sort of well into the nixon rehabilitation time where like yes. really you just knew him as a character from the simpsons who people were kind of like well he got a bad rap because he did like normalize relations with china and he did all this he, there was good stuff he did too and that's like mostly what you heard about him was like you know he like mostly did he did good stuff and then he got in trouble but this movie really lays it out and goes into great great detail to show what a horrific person he was and how everybody around him was horrible and everything it like it just shows that at the highest level of, of power they're all just a bunch of like crooks and weirdos and like people who have taken out their personal pathologies and inferiority complexes on the entire world mm -hmm. it is it's quite a, a riveting movie i absolutely loved seeing it i i want to almost watch it immediately again i remember when i first watched jfk like as soon as i got done with the tape i rewound it and watched it again i feel it's almost a, is as good as jfk unfortunately not as big a hit actually a flop at the box office made 13 million on a 44 million dollar budget and i don't think this film has the place in history that it needs to have yeah it absolutely should have been a bigger hit however there's a couple things that did not help it. One of them was that the media learned after JFK how not to go after some kind of this kind of material, um, because Nixon does the Oliver Stone's Nixon does pretty much falsify or make a counter narrative to the uh, to the regular myth of Watergate. It has Nixon as a, a villain, but a human villain or a human with villainous qualities. But you get the sense that he has been brought along to serve mm -hmm. sort of dark, dark forces, even dark, much darker forces, really, when it comes down to it, and that he is discarded by them and that he doesn't even know what happened. And I think that that's what Nixon does really well. It gets it right. It gets that part of it right. As bad as Nixon is, the other forces are worse. And ultimately, he is confused and about what actually happened to him. If you read his memoirs or Haldeman's memoirs, they're both like, yeah, it was a palace coup of some kind. And uh, Nixon reportedly, the guy that did his ghost writing of his memoirs with him, a guy named Frank Gannon, uh, Jefferson Morley just wrote a book on Nixon and Helms, uh, you know, uh, the Dick on, he sort of recast Watergate as a Dick on Dick crime, like Dick Helms versus Dick, <laughs> Dick Nixon. And uh, he said that it, the guy, Frank Gannon, who was uh, the ghostwriter for Nixon's memoirs, Nixon would get drunk and they would hang out. And if Nixon had some whiskey, he would say that 
uh, you know, and Gannon would ask him, who do you think was, what was really behind Watergate? He would say, it was, this, Nixon would say, it was the same people that killed Jack Kennedy. And that, even to, to even think of that as how that could be possible requires a lot of historical awareness that you just don't get from uh, history classes or, mm-hmm. or mainstream history. So it's, it leaves the viewer kind of confused in a way similar to the way Nixon was, I think, in the end, when you try to think, like, why did they do all of that? And what there's clues, but it's Oliver doesn't really come down on trying to put it into a grand theory. He just, he, he leaves it in leaves a way that film functions, yeah, as a metaphor for, for Americans. Nixon is sort of like Americans themselves, and ultimately looking at the, the real power structure and thinking like, okay, I can see that this is pretty horrible and it's destroyed me, but I still like don't understand it. Like to have that kind of power and also the power to keep that obscured is pretty staggering. And that's what Nixon was, was dealing with. And that's why it's not just a gangster movie. As you say, it has elements of that. It's not just a political historical movie. It has gangster elements, but also I would say that there's like an element of horror yes. in it as well mm-hmm. to where that- it really is genre blending. Mr. President, don't you see that all these uh, deletion marks in the transcript make it look as though you, <laughs> you do nothing but swear? <laughs> so is my mother's memory. You think I want the whole goddamn world to see my mother <laughs> like this, raising a dirty mouth? Well, we can start again, sir, but it means uh, we don't really have the staff to do that. Then start over. Just start over. The world will see only what I show them. From page one, Al. Page one. Run. I get it. Let's do something. All this stuff. You're just along for the nightmare, really, as an American and as Nixon. And there's a sequence in here that looks very much like Jacob's Ladder, where he uh, is having the attack of, um, I forget, some kind of lung, lung issue that he, they had that he thought was tuberculosis. And then he starts mm. having a nightmare about his older brother who died. And then it just becomes like a full on, not even taking place in the real world uh, sort of scene, which is very, very well done. I have to say, Oliver Stone uh, directed the shit out of this movie, mm-hmm. I have to say. It is a very, yeah. it's just a good movie. Besides the historical importance and whatever context is providing, it's, I really found myself, even the three and a half hour director's cut, which is what you have to watch. Don't just watch the regular cut. Watch the director's cut. I it, it was a breeze to watch. It was as fun to watch as like a casino or a Goodfellas. During that sequence when he had tuberculosis, I really like the part where he's being put into the MRI machine. And it's this like just very like art film thing where it's just a big like red orb and you see his like the silhouette of his body going in. Um, yeah, I, I think like, you know, Oliver Stone can really direct the hell out of a movie. What's funny about that. Uh, about Oliver in this film is that he sort of has uh, walked back some of the main points of the of the film in that he thinks that he might they might not have you know some of their they, and they don't throw things down in a definitive way they leave it kind of ambiguous but he he came to think like I, I had dis- some discussions with him like he came to visit my um, my high school class that I was teaching on uh, the American Century and we watch a lot of films some of the students watch Nixon. They ask him about the beast to talk about the beast and the Bay of Pigs references to the Kennedy assassination that Nixon makes. And Oliver said that, well, we, uh, we you know, we, we think we may have gotten that aspect of it wrong. And then he talked a little bit about uh, the Bay of 
about uh, the military industrial complex and other things related to that. But, but I emailed him about this back and forth for a little bit and was saying like, I think that you actually are, are onto something here because there's not just the famous Bay of Pigs thing quote that in the smoking gun tape when Haldeman's talk, sent over to talk to Helms and Helms freaks out about the Bay of Pigs thing uh, over at the CIA. There's, a, there's another quote that's even more provocative than that, and that was actually before Watergate. It was in 1971, and Nixon goes over to, uh, he personally goes over to speak to Richard Helms at, at Langley, and he starts asking, saying, I want more of this. You've been stonewalling my guys on the Bay of Pigs documents, and this is, I'm not happy about this, so can you try to give them to them? Or can you make sure that I have these these documents? And then so later he has this longer confrontation with him where he's like saying, like, look, I, I want to know the facts here. I want to know what happened, what the CIA has been up to. Uh, um, I approve of so much of what you've done and so on. Uh, but here he says, he said, the problem is not the CIA. My interest is only to know the facts. So he and Helms doesn't seem to care. But Nixon goes on and he makes a case like saying, I'm the president. I should be allowed to know. To, to know what's going on. <laughs> shouldn't be this way, right? Your job is to inform the president. So he says, first, this is my information. And second, I need it for defensive reasons for a negotiation. Helms didn't really say much. Uh, and then so Nixon tries to say, well, I just want to protect the, the agency. And this is the important quote from Nixon. The who shot John Angle? Is Eisenhower to blame? Is Kennedy to blame? Is Johnson to blame? Is Nixon to blame? Et cetera, et cetera. It may become, not by me, a very rigorous issue, but if it does, I need to know what is necessary to protect, frankly, the intelligence gathering in the Dirty Tricks Department, and I will protect it. I've done more than my share of lying to protect you, and I believe it's totally right to do it. So, so he knows the CIA is, A, potentially dangerous to a president because he knows what happened to Jack Kennedy, and B, that if he could somehow get control of the agency through control of this powerful blackmail material, that it would empower his presidency because he would it would remove a very powerful potentially deadly check on his presidential authority uh and he he never gets those documents he, in fact the watergate break-in happens less than a year later and a lot of people believe that they're part of what was going on with the watergate break-in and why they bungled it so badly was to put nixon in a compromised position to get leverage over him and uh, i think that there's a lot of reason to believe that that is what happened yeah, there's a line in the early, uh, early in the movie where he says the presidency itself won't protect us. We're beyond the politics now. And that's sort of the through line of this movie, because very early on, he gets to win. He gets the power. He's he is president and it doesn't change anything. He still has enemies he has to deal with everywhere. He still has deals he has to make. He still has compromises and he had to make. And he ha still has to hide who he really is and pretend to be things he's not and he doesn't enjoy any of this power. I wonder if any of that sounds familiar to some people because when I'm watching this movie, the number one thing I thought was, oh my God, not only was Trump predictable, it was inevitable. It is shocking that Donald Trump- It was actually Trump a sequel in a yes. lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, the Post wrote that. Washington Post actually had an article where they said the last president uh, who tried to take on the CIA was Richard Nixon. And this was early in Trump's presidency. And that's- very notable that the Washington Post would would make that connection of all places, considering the role they played in 
you know, basically being on the not Nixon side during Watergate. Mm -hmm. Dick Helms, played by Sam Sam Waterston uh, of Jack McCoy fame. I just wanted to note, I've never seen a man look more like he was from Virginia than this, than Sam Waterston in this movie. The hair, the look, <laughs> you just know this scumbag lives in Northern Virginia and works for an intelligence agency or defense contractor immediately. And he keeps pressuring Nixon uh, throughout the film. He gets, he, Nixon, it's a very, the movie is like a fever dream, really. It's like, a, yeah. and like, it's really, really, hard to get into the plot and the various plots that are going on but there's several through lines there's the personal through line with nixon and basically his mommy issues he loved mm -hmm. his mother he thought she was a saint and i don't know if the movie seems to agree with that uh, but <laughs> she, it seems to portray her as you know somewhat um delusional of some sort not necessarily uh wholly uh, as a positive figure and she certainly seemed to have done a, a some kind of number on him along with the abuse uh somewhat abusive father figure and he never really lets go of this trauma that he has as a childhood is very citizen kane is explicitly so i think oliver stone references yeah. uh citizen kane throughout the film the movie is not so focused on like detailing every little thing that happened. It almost like presumes especially like a little bit of especially Watergate. Yeah, like it almost presumes a water a, a, a knowledge of Watergate, and then kind of just like you know becomes this you know almost like watching it's almost like watching like Nixon's life flash before his eyes as he dies or something like that. I guess like Citizen Kane. Yeah, they don't put as much details about Watergate as they could have. I mean, and there's a good bit that's been written about it and has come out over the years. And, and I, there's some things that he could have. I mean, it's three and a half hours long, and there's not a lot of like filler in there. So I, I sympathize with the challenge of trying to somehow condense this into a watchable film. Um, but there are things. But the, if you, I sort of took notes on it as I was watching it, just so I'd have like a chronology of what they actually cover in the film. And they do jump around in a way that if you're not a little bit conversant in it, it would be kind of confusing because there's the break-in, but the break-in happens and the arrests happen before the actual election is 72. The Pentagon Papers happens in 71. Um, and so there are, they do go back and forth between those things. And the resignation happens in, I think, uh, late later in the second half of 74. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have a big, Democratic victory in Congress in 74 uh, because of that, the water, so-called Watergate Congress. And so, so some of the things that they that they do care. So when you take notes on what they do put in historically, there's there are references to a whole lot of things. And yet they don't really do. They don't get into the details of the burglary so much. But there are still mysteries about that, like who ordered the second break in is unknown. It seems that the bugging device that they discovered uh, days or weeks later was actually planted after the fact and it was to the wrong place. Uh, and McCord's actions in particular, he's a character who's not really, they have room, they focus more on Hunt, E. Howard Hunt, and he was the flashier person and the more colorful, notorious one. He got caught forging those diplomatic cables. They do reference that in the film, trying to blame JFK for the noted DM assassination. But they don't focus on four or on McCord and he's the guy who in wretched more and more stuff comes out about has come out about him over the years. And he was uh, arrested. And yet he was the person who started talking about the CIA in the courtroom, supposedly in front of Bob Woodward. Um, and this leads to them starting to look at this case. They don't really 
focus on who McCord was. He was a person who was at the highest levels of the Office of Security, which is that part of the CIA that is charged with dealing with the most gangsterish, uh, supra legal operations. For example, if you ever saw the Wormwood documentary um, by uh, Earl Morris on uh, Netflix, it was about Frank Olson, the Frank Olson murder in 1953, where he was thrown out of a window after being dosed with acid by the CIA. And uh, uh, this is well documented at this point. And one of the discoveries of that film was that it was James McCord who was sent to, to clean up that mess of the, of the Olson case. So, and E Howard Hunt himself said in 1975, yeah, there's a, there's an organization in the CIA that's in charge with uh, assassinating security risks, even if they're CIA agents and so on. So that must've been what McCord did. Uh, in that, I mean, that's that's very clearly what happened to Frank Olson. Seymour Hersh had a high place sourced source in the CIA who went to look at that 1953 Frank Olson murder and found that it was carried out by the uh, a mechanism within the CIA for dealing with potential, uh, you know, inf- security risks, which is what Olson was deemed to be. They thought he might start talking about biological warfare and MK Ultra uh, that he worked on during his time at the CIA. So they. Uh, threw him out of a 10-story window. <laughs> and uh, just as the CIA assassination manual says you should do, actually, which came out around the same time, around the early, early 50s, it said one good thing to do is throw people out of a window. So they make this discovery that Olson uh, was murdered in part with Frank Olson, or with James McCord's help, one of the Watergate burglars. And when McCord is in jail, one of the things he says in 1972 is that if Helms, Helms, they better not blame this on the CIA. If Helms goes, every tree in the forest will fall. It'll be a scorched desert. And Nixon does fire Helms, and then everything does go to shit. And uh, this McCord character, who also worked on doomsday plans for the government, like plans for if there were a, a political crisis, you'd round up all the dissidents and start censoring the media and everything else like that. Like McCord was not just a retired guy looking to make a few extra bucks doing work for the White House. Like he was an operator and he screwed Nixon uh, by incompetently bungling that burglary and uh, then really screwing him to maximum effect while he was rotting and sitting in jail uh, when, when he didn't need to. So it's that there's, there's so much more to Watergate that they could have put in there Yeah, is I guess the point of it. And so it's, you make a seven hour movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you could, you could for sure. Yeah. So you, you mentioned, you know, these hatchet men underappreciated fact about Nixon is he was one of those guys. He got his start as this staunch anti-communist and from, and this isn't like he personally helped us set this guy up named Hiss as a spy, as a communist spy. And that's how he got his start. Yeah. It was like working with, yeah, like, uh, you know, the communist witch hunts in Congress and including creating a fake typewriter to fabricate a letter from his uh, that shows that he was, you know, spying for uh, the Russian government. Yeah, the FBI, he admitted to either Colson or John Dean that, that they had fabricated the typewriter in the his case. But even even in that case, so Nixon was recruited by some wealthy Wall Street bankers connected to Brown Brothers Harriman, probably Prescott Bush was among them. And he was recruited to run against this guy, Jerry Voorhees, because Jerry Voorhees represented the New Deal and the actual best parts of American democracy. He wanted to nationalize, among other things, Voorhees wanted to nationalize the Federal Reserve, the the banking and monetary system owned by Wall Street banks that dominates the U.S. and thus the global economy, but isn't even like a publicly owned organization. He wanted to nationalize that. 
he went after Standard Oil and some of their offshore drilling chicanery in California. Um, so he was a good congressman. And so the Wall Street guys wanted somebody to get rid of him and they got Nixon. And Nixon just smeared him as a communist and that became his thing, to smear people as communists. And then when he gets to Congress, he goes after Alger Hiss. They originally were going after Harry Dexter White, who died too quickly. Uh, and you know, some people think he may have been poisoned. Uh, he was the Treasury Secretary under FDR, but they, he was their first target, but he dies before it, that gets resolved. Um, they go after Alger Hiss, and it's very dubious evidence. The, the, the pumpkin patch papers were all like, when they declassified those, that supposedly dastardly, uh, you know, criminal act of putting these files in a, inside of a hollowed out pumpkin that seemed to be pretty clearly staged. And the documents were all like related to like boring export data and stuff like that. Like it, but it didn't, those were classified for decades. So people didn't even know, but the effect of all that, the McCarthyism, the HUAC hearings going after Alger Hiss, it wiped out uh, the new deal or greatly weakened new deal progressive tendencies in the American political system uh, as a and as a result, you have you know anti-communism taking over and sort of New Dealers being pushed. New Dealers and people just interested in what we think of as like progressive government, the rule of law, fair play in any sense. They're like really kept out of power. And the Kennedys, I think, represented John Kennedy posed as a cold warrior, but represented really more of that New Deal style and wanted to end. It, it turned out he wanted to end the Cold War and try different foreign policy and domestic policies. But he was a throwback to that sort of New Deal era. And I think that's why he had to go. And as Chomsky says, Nixon was the last liberal president. And uh, he also says, Nixon also said, we're all Keynesian now. Well, look at what happens after you get rid of Nixon. You don't have any more liberal presidents, as Chomsky says. And you get Milton Friedman supply side monetary and fiscal politics uh, some version of that rather than Keynesian New Deal politics. So Nixon actually was the last liberal president and getting rid of him, if you if you step back and look at what happened to American history, you see getting rid of Nixon marked a shift to the right in American politics, moving both parties to the right. And that needs to be explained and conventional history doesn't explain it. That basically the EPA has been eradicated. It, 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 and the Nixon, EPA... Nixon founded EPA. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Nixon, Nixon's last great gift is now being dismantled before our very eyes. Yeah, and he created OSHA as well. He had plans for a universal uh, guaranteed minimum income, you know, like a, a, an income that everybody would get, basic income for people in the United States. Uh, I heard Peter Dell Scott say, uh, the historian and poet and retired Berkeley professor, uh, I heard him say that he, he thought Nixon was the last president who had a sort of Christian concern for the poor, and I, I think that that was sort of it. He was he incorporated labor somewhat. You know, he got the Teamsters endorsement, which I know involves some other things too, the Teamsters. But he had the, he had support for labor, support for the middle class in the United States. He and and he wanted to. I I, I believe that as a elected president, he had the idea he would help America be prosperous, which would help him be remembered well by history and help his political chances to do whatever he wanted to do. And it's a mark of how messed up our situation is now that like it's hard to imagine a politician would actually think along those lines yeah because we're so used to like a totally controlled system of like we get screwed over and the politicians have more powerful incentives to screw us over than actually help us but nixon had some independence and agency as a guy who knew the system really well 
and was trying to juggle all these things. And I think, uh, you know, be perceived as being a good president by the majority of American people, uh, even though he did all these villainous criminal things as well. He, he, he this has to be noted how it, it was a change that came after him and it wasn't a positive change. Uh, yeah, and honestly, like, you know, there's an interesting scene in the movie where he talks about compromise in a way that, like, as you mentioned, just feels so foreign to how compromise is actually done now, you know, in D.C. Like, you know, Nixon talks about it in the movie as, like, having to, you know, normalize relations with uh, China. And now it's this bizarre, you know, just, like, dance of offering things. Like, Nixon was sort of able to act unilaterally and do things that no other Republican would do, you know, as you said, to try to, like, improve his standing with the people that don't like him rather than just solidify, like, the base he already has. And the base of donor support, which is, like, really key. But he did piss off some people. The military was spying on him and Kissinger for trying to do these things independently. They actually got caught spying on Kissinger. That's not even mentioned in the film, but it's another crazy aspect of the presidency. The moment I probably fell in love with this movie was the scene with Kissinger when Nixon just like dresses him down and makes him look like a little like a little twerp. And I love seeing that because that's the closest that any real comeuppets to really uh, uh, any uh, real uh, comeuppets uh, that Kissinger it will get in his, his real life that in this movie he was made to look like a complete piece of shit, a uh, piece of garbage. And I did enjoy that. Kissinger was a Rockefeller man, and that that comes out in the other the other movie, which we might mention, sure. um, Se- Secret Honor, where he actually says these things more explicitly. But Kissinger was uh, a guy who the, was put up at Rockefeller's Council on Foreign Relations at Harvard. Also, he, he was there, uh, which is you know a center of the U.S. establishment. Uh, his mansion was paid for by I think Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller was going to house Kissinger's papers. So he's just a guy with like a lot. He married a Rockefeller secretary. He's a guy with a a lot of ties to David Rockefeller and that aspect of the American ruling class, which may be the most, you know, powerful element of the American deep state or establishment or whatever you want to call it. And so he's he was probably right to be suspicious of Rockefeller and and Kissinger even though he was doing things that were in line with what Rockefeller wanted, including opening up to China, which was kind of a Rockefeller venture. Uh, so it's, it, that part's fascinating, the interplay between the Kissinger character and, uh, and Nixon. And I'll tell you where you would not see scenes like that if Aaron Sorkin had done a Nixon movie. And I really wanted to talk about this because when you watch this movie, it is basically the same thing. It's about the presidency. It's about men talking in rooms about what they're doing. But the pres- but the actual texture of it, the presentation, how they talk to each other, seems to me a hundred times more realistic in Nixon than this completely phony fantasy wor- world that Aaron Sorkin puts in most of his uh flicks and movies and i just that one-to-one comparison between like this and the west wing is just mind-boggling like west wing is like so much more offensive now that i've seen uh nixon because you could do one that actually exposes like the ugliness and the pettiness that we know exists in all of these circles that all of the because i mean they're just a bunch of old 
racist, sexist white men. That is like literally true. Like the Bill Clinton, the West Wing is supposed to be like the Clinton White House, like the guy who was going around sleeping with his interns and groping people and sexually harassing people. But the West Wing, this show is all about honor and respect and debate. And that's just not what the real like what it really is at the White House or at the higher rungs of power. Yeah, it, Sorkin is the, that version of politics is is kind of is embarrassing, really, when you consider what goes on. I mean, maybe it sort of approximated some elements of the Clinton White House, but a lot of the policy, especially foreign policy in during Clinton years, is really weird. And you wonder how much I've come to wonder how much Clinton was actually managing the uh, covert side of U.S. foreign policy because the U.S. was involved in. Uh, also really shady things in in the Balkans, like not just the the wars that we entered there, but like actually creating the uh, conditions to, for that for the breakup of Yugoslavia, and that included using like Al Qaeda type of assets in Bosnia and uh, Kosovo, especially like in Kosovo, we were supporting the Kosovo Liberation Army, and there the the commander on the ground there was also working with an Al Qaeda unit. And that one was led by Muhammad al-Zawahiri, you know, whose brother is Ayman, the top Al-Qaeda guy, Ayman al-Zawahiri. And this is going on. And I, I, I don't know that this is like official, like Clinton giving the, the blue, you know, the, the approval to this. Because I asked Larry Wilkerson, who was secretary of state about this stuff in the 90s. I was like, were you guys aware of these connections with uh, Islamic terrorism and US, as a U.S. foreign proxy in the 1990s? And uh, Wilkerson said, no, he didn't. They never, that never came up. And he was the deputy to the secretary of state. He was the chief of staff for Colin Powell. And he said, like, they didn't really, they talked about Al Qaeda because Al Qaeda was attacking U.S. embassies, State Department personnel, but he didn't really, he wasn't aware of what the U.S. was doing. So, you know, if, if Clinton at all approximated the sort of discussions like Aaron Sorkin's, you know, version of the White House, it's because he uh a lot of the dark machinations of the actual u.s regime and u.s imperialism were done and he wasn't even he was just informed of like different facts on the ground after the fact not these operations that were that were going on it, at least it appears that way to me so you know sorkin and this sort of dorky liberal um high school civics class a plus student way of looking at politics is just as kind of a joke and oliver stone uh is isn't a much higher class than, than anybody who puts out that stuff in my opinion all right so uh we mentioned secret honor we watched that mm -hmm. as well jack and you mentioned that on the show uh on the alan moore uh, on struggle session presents alan that's moore, right when we were talking about the outline for twilight of the superheroes oh oh i thought it was on when we were doing the cia comic book because it was the similar. Oh well, it's it's both actually. So okay. it's it's in Twilight of the Superheroes, he was basing the Uncle Sam character uh, as like a ranting, you know, sort of conspiracy guy oh, yeah. at the bar. He that was based on Secret Honor, and then uh, the Brought to Light comic uh, yes, was yes. based on his pitch for Uncle Sam in Twilight of the Superheroes. So he made a bald eagle kind of into a Nixonian character. But yeah, it's both are based on this Robert Altman film 
that was based on a play uh, that really is just a one-man play uh, starring Philip Baker Hall um, as Nixon unburdening himself. Yeah, Philip Baker Hall, you may know him as Bookman from Seinfeld. He, I think he passed away a couple of year, years also ago. Also a lot of uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Yeah, he, he passed away not too long ago. Um, and yeah, he, he, it's an interesting one, you know, compared especially to, you know, Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins does such a good job with the voice and the mannerisms and doesn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily look like Nixon, but does kind of get you to believe that he's Nixon. Philip Baker Hall doesn't even really do the voice or any of the physical mannerisms, but just like, uh, it, I, captures I would the, say the captures spirit, the soul, spirit, the soul just, just of, songs. yeah. Yeah, yeah, truly, like the like paranoid uh, drunk rambler, you know, he's able to capture uh, and such that you really do believe he's Nixon in this movie. What? Oh, mother! I did not elect myself. They elected me not once, not twice, but all my goddamn life, and they would do it again too if they had the chance. Oh, sure. They said they didn't trust me. They said let Dick Nixon do it, and I did it. They said they wouldn't buy a used car for me, but they gave me the biggest vote in American history. And then they flushed me down the toilet, and they wanted me to stay down. They wanted me to kill myself. Well, I won't do it. If they want me dead, they'll have to do it. Fuck them! Fuck them! Fuck them! Fuck them! Fuck them! That movie was written by Donald Freed, who was a guy in the 1970s, did a lot of work on parapolitical issues when uh, uh, there was a movement of radical leftists who wanted to look at things like the Kennedy assassination and Watergate and the CIA and drug running. And so he's really steeped in uh, parapolitics, deep political research. He was a good friend and he still is friends with, uh, with Peter Dale Scott. Uh, and so they've known each other for ages. Uh, many years ago, back in the 70s, Peter Dale Scott and Donald Freed had dinner at Huey Newton's apartment with Huey Newton and were sitting around talking politics, you know, for, for an evening. And uh, so I, I might actually, Peter said that uh, Donald is still alive. And so I may send this to him after the fact to see, uh, to get his take on this. But there's a lot of information in that movie that would not make sense if you were not really steeped in this pretty complicated history. For example, when he's talking about the Committee of 100 and he's talking about the China lobby in Taiwan all the time, these are references to parts of the Nixon story that get suppressed. He was he was backed by people like uh, Claire Cheneau, you know, and the well, the China lobby, like the the what was the KMT China lobby, and they were very much connected to the global heroin trade. And so this drug money angle to what they're talking about when they're saying, like, where is all this money coming from? It's going into creep, you know, because the guy is talking about this. This is one of the unsolved mysteries of Watergate is where all this money came from in East Asia. And, you know, Air America, heroin trafficking, this was related to those same elements. And Nixon did also declare war, the war on drugs. He was the original war on drugs guy. And this was harmful to those China lobby, Far East lobby people that really backed him and were supporting him. And, you know, they helped him in 1968. It was a China lobby person named Claire Cheneau who helped them to sabotage peace talks in Paris. So, and this was a crime, a treasonous crime. And LBJ knew about it because he was having 
uh, Nixon followed and wiretapped. There's references to that in Stone's Nixon too, but it's, it would pass by you if you weren't looking for it. But Nixon was very connected to these people and was connected to uh, drug-influenced deep uh, politics of the United States. Like the CIA had a, was a, and elements that created the CIA from Wall Street established the post the drug traffic after World War II in the Golden Triangle using people like Paul Helliwell, a Wall Street lawyer and CIA guy, uh, Frank Wisner, uh, William Donovan, who ran the precursor to the CIA, the OSS, and uh, Intrepid or William Stevenson, this British guy. They were involved in this right after World War II. And this is creates a, a clandestine network of uh, lots of money and drug money and so on and helps to get the U.S. involved in Vietnam. And so Nixon really was trying to but in the Vietnam War eventually. But this was not, you know, as soon as the U.S. leaves Vietnam, the drugs basically the drug trade there ends. That's pretty remarkable in and of itself. And, uh, you know, this was exposed by people like Peter Del Scott and Alfred historian, historian Alfred McCoy, politics of heroin, this whole element of U.S. of U.S. Uh, foreign policy and the political system that involved working with the biggest drug traffickers in the world. And this is part of what the guy is freaking out about. You know, Nixon is freaking out about in secret honor. Uh, because, they, you know, Don Freed, who wrote that story, was really immersed in this stuff and knew Peter Del Scott and all Peter's work in these areas. And uh, ironically, we are actually posting at my website, AmericanException.com, an article 50, that was stolen from Peter 50 years ago by the CIA that when they were intercepting Ramparts Magazine's mail. They uh, took this article and they, it was about the heroin trafficking and Wall Street and the CIA and Air America and Southeast Asia. It was one of the would have been one of the first articles on this subject, but would have been published in Ramparts. But because they were using Operation Chaos to inter, and other programs to intercept mail at that time, this article got taken down. And the CIA, for whatever reason, accidentally posted it on their website, and I downloaded it. I think they've taken it down since what? then. But I sent it to Peter, and I'm like, Peter, this is this article is yours. We should pub, we should edit this and publish it because it hasn't been out for 50 years and it actually gets into some of the same material. It was the original work on all these drug trafficking operations and their connections to the Wall Street elite. Uh, and from there, you can uh, connect them to some of the drama of, of Watergate and why the, the state sort of turns against Nixon, because Nixon does declare the war on drugs and he does piss off these elements as well. And so Nixon just made a lot of powerful enemies and uh, uh, these enemies are people who apparently have the ability to break the law at will and maintain, you know, drug trafficking operations with state sanction. And they, the U.S. back in the day when this was going on would always blame it on communist China, but it was really nationalist China that was doing it, the Taiwanese. Uh, so the KMT, which was China's or Taiwan's ruling party, they were drug traffickers, like the world's biggest drug traffickers in the 50s, 60s, uh, throughout the 50s and 60s. And it really only stops in the 70s. And at that point, Afghanistan also then becomes the world center of heroin production, not coincidentally when the U.S. gets involved there as well. So it's it's like this whole history is so insane. Jack and I, we were just on um, Pod Damn America and we talked about Garth Ennis's Nick Fury book. And it has and this is the storyline of it. Yeah. The U.S. government getting involved in the drug trade in uh, in Vietnam and then using that idea to fund fund uh, wars, imperialist wars later on. Uh, Secret Honor came out in 1984. 
if you told someone in people would say you were crazy if you said like the CIA and the U.S. government were dealing drugs, right? Like I, I very clearly remember like that was a controversial thing to say. You were a hotep if you believed mm -hmm. that. Probably up until like I fuck, I would say like 2010. But now like a everybody, lot of people would still a lot of people would still call you crazy for it. Yeah. But yes, it's way more widely accepted. What came out? So a lot of it came out with the Dark Alliance stuff, but then the press so destroyed Gary Webb for that that it was like still controversialized, but. Now that now the press is kind of so in the tank, they don't even really broach those issues. But the alternative media, you know, there's a lot of people, I think, that listen to these kind of shows in my podcast that would that are more aware of this. So we have kind of a strange, like historical apartheid de facto thing where it's like oh. there's a bigger population of people that actually do recognize the naked illegitimacy uh, and the criminality of the regime. Uh, but it's, you know, it has yet to reach critical mass, unfortunately. We have to talk about the Vietnam War a bit. And Nixon, getting back to the film Nixon, it, it's not the main thrust, but it is important to the plot in the movie. But it is mostly in the background. But Oliver Stone mostly uses, in, uh, again, with the interesting techniques, he uses ar archival footage of uh, the actual bombing in place while Nixon is giving these talks about how he wishes he was leaking. He sounds actually sounds like a Sorkin character. But then there's cuts to what those policies actually mean for actual human beings in the real world. And I thought that was incredibly uh effective storytelling even though this is not a movie really about vietnam like this movie takes place over decades and decades so the story is covered but only in these brief glimpses but all the glimpses are about the fact that uh they were murdering people doing massive bombing campaigns on these countries basically for political reasons for deal making and for like libidinal reasons too at some at certain points like uh, as someone says oh the reason uh that we have to bomb this country because he can be the team captain and uh, of the football team when he was a kid you know like about and they say that about Nixon and that feels just so real to me as something that's kind of left out of most portrayals of the Vietnam War so even though there is a small part in it I think it does a good job of contextualizing what it is it's these rich privileged assholes sitting in rooms and then just commanding sending people to their death what's uh, I'm friends with Professor Peter Kuznick and also with Dan Ellsberg and, and Peter Kuznick invited Ellsberg to speak to his American University class. And the subject was, why did the Vietnam War drag on so long? And because Ellsberg released the Pentagon Papers in 1971 in order to try to bring it into the Vietnam War. But then it kept going for until 1975. Right. And so why the hell did that go on? Everybody knew that they had lost uh, and Nixon was trying to go for peace with honor. And at some points in the film, as you as you point out, he does seem to have a weird kind of desire to portray this or other people conceive it as like some sort of exercise of like macho omnipotence to like do these bombings. And then other times he's talking about how he's trying to end it and he can't because uh, and the woman at the at the Lincoln Memorial says, you couldn't end the war if you if you wanted to. You, you can't control this. You, you can't control the beast. And uh, and you get the sense Nixon is actually would like to, on some level, try to end it and he plans to end it. And yet he can't do it. And he talks about he doesn't want to be the only president to end the war, even though he needs peace with honor, which was his catchphrase there. So it, it, he comes across as trying to act as though he's omnipotent, powerful, manly destroyer at times in some way, combined with like, I really want to end this, but I'm powerless. 
he has one line to her where it's like you have to fight for peace idea that the way to sell this unpopular ma a massively unpopular war is to you know focus on the heroism of the troops and our desire for peace uh with the world that otherwise would fall to communism uh in immediately he 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 sells it but then after nixon after you know communism stops being as popular we get the same remake with you know islamic terrorism later and now we're getting it with mm -hmm. russia looking at this movie and learning about this history but it feels like history you already lived because you've seen so much of this happen again and again with no one really learning or changing or even point or even doing a this you to like some of the people who are still involved because a lot of the people in nixon are still alive every once in a while they might pop up on the cnn certainly henry kissinger does like there's literally a movie about how henry kissinger i mean this is on the big screen that everybody saw about how he is a war criminal i mean kissinger is considered an elder statesman and that's very interesting when you look at what uh how nixon ended up and how his sort of trajectory or path for the U.S. was discarded, but Henry Kissinger is still well regarded. And yet even he is somebody that, like, he came out recently saying we needed a negotiated settlement in Ukraine. And then the people, even some, like, Bernie Sanders' uh, political, you know, foreign policy advisor came out and dissed yeah, Henry I Kissinger for not being hawkish <laughs> enough. It's just, it, it shows how, it, it's just alarming. You're, you've people who are merciless war criminals who would not mind, you know, consigning hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, even to death, like Henry Kissinger. And yet, because he has, he's some, he's not on board with like the consensus of the war machine. He, he, he's like suddenly anathema to Bernie Sanders presidential advisor or yeah. policy advisor. Yeah, it's so happen? weird. It's so funny. Even, um, and this came up at the time, uh, of that mention of uh, when the Bernie Sanders guy was was attacking Kissinger uh, over the Ukraine stuff, he uh, it, it people mentioned during the Iraq War, Kissinger put out like an op-ed basically saying that this might possibly go bad, and all the deep state people during the Bush admin got kind of pissed off at him and tried to get him like kicked off of shit just for writing a little op-ed to <laughs> cover his own. Kissinger. Yeah, to cover, and he wrote this. Uh, and he wrote this op-ed clearly just to cover his own ass, so that w when it inevitably turns out to be a disaster, he can point out and say, "Oh, I was against it." Actually, when no, no, that's not what the op-ed says. He says there might be troubles, but it actually now is remembered that people were saying Henry Kissinger opposed the Iraq War, and in real time, these stories, this history gets rewritten again and again. He was not really on the right side there. More so than, like, he wasn't as guilty as, like, Cheney, but he was definitely, he was definitely guilty uh, of being, uh, you know, in that chorus. And he's guilty of a zillion other things. But this is, this gets to the heart of the, of the Watergate issue. Nixon famously said, after this was done, uh, he, I think, I believe it's after he resigns that he did the Frost interview, right? The Frost versus Nixon thing. And he says, well, when the president doesn't, that means it's not illegal. And people act like, oh, no. Like people like Aaron Sorkin would probably be like, that is wrong. You can't break the law, mister. You're not above the law. You're, <laughs> just because you're the president, this is American. It doesn't work that way. Well, what Nixon did was, I mean, the, the, what is actually on the so-called smoking gun tape is a crime that is quite small compared to the crimes uh, committed by the U.S. state. 
And if you're going to say that, like, okay, those crimes are okay, but when the but you're not saying when the president does it, it's illegal. I mean, the president is at least elected to execute the policy of the federal government. These the CIA has no electoral democratic mandate to go around breaking the law all the time. How in the world is it uh, in a, if, to, in a, a better if for them to have the power to act lawlessly and cover it up in perpetuity? Uh, and then the president doesn't. I'm not saying that the president should either. I think the U.S. should follow international law and domestic law. But I think if you did that, you would have more democratic outcomes and you wouldn't have this oligarchic empire. And so that's why we don't we can't really have the rule of law. We have to have the pretense of the rule of law. But then it gets applied selectively. But Nixon knew that that this exception to the rule of law, that's why I call my book and the podcast American Exception. It's about Carl Schmitt and his discourse on the state of exception to the rule of law, meaning there's some kind of emergency. So you need to act as an exception to the rule of law and, and do what needs to be done to shore up the state. And so Nixon is acting in that way because that's the way the U.S. has acted since the Cold War began, as though it were under constant attack and any sort of gangster business that they did was justified to preserve the state, which is under a terrible threat from the global communist conspiracy. So Nixon actually go, is trying to get dirt on the CIA related to John Kennedy. And then later, when they find out that a lot of the burglars at Watergate were connected to the CIA, his CIA director that, that he appoints after he fires Dick Helms, this guy named James Schlesinger, he has him dig up as much dirt as he can on the CIA. That's where the family jewels come from. Because yes, Nixon that was is, is linking uh, to the press. Yeah. And so we, he, Nixon, again, is responsible for us knowing a lot of the dirt that the CIA did, the last liberal president. Yeah. I mean, this is, this, this is where it has to be seen as an establishment civil war with Nixon on one side and the, and the national security state forces on the other side, but also something above these alphabet agencies, I would argue. I, I think that when you're talking about the CIA and the organization itself, I think you're going to miss the real essence of the CIA and the source of its power, which is the fact that it is the secret police for the pinnacle of politico-economic mm -hmm. power in the United States. That's why it has the ability to act without impunity. That's why the media, which is owned by these same forces, will cover up their crimes as much as possible because these are crimes done in the service of maintaining the dominance of the richest and most powerful people in the world. Nixon thought as the president, he should have control of this system and bureaucracy, control of the CIA. And uh, he was taken out, you know, in part because of, because of his attempts to uh, try to assert control over the state that he had been elected to run. There's so much to this movie, Aaron. We're going to have to do a part two. We didn't get to talk about the Mao meeting, which is actually, I looked at the actual transcript as it is in the movie, is, is how it happened in real life, where Mao is kind of like joking and belittling. Nixon is not really super like into this meeting, and he does he doesn't he's not quite as vulgar about the women in, in real life, but he does like mention like, oh, Henry Kissinger, he's always see him with, you know, hot girls. How, how does that happen? And it's just like this very, very, there's so much in this movie so and that we could talk about endlessly. I, I wish we could talk about more like the the scene where he has to er erase all the slurs from his tapes. We, oh my God, we yeah. didn't even get into the fact that this, he was recording himself a mystery still that has never been solved. Why he would record himself doing all these crimes. JFK did that also. 
And the guy that revealed that was probably CIA. The guy Butterfield who says that and basically seals Nixon's fate was probably uh, under CIA, a CIA guy working under official cover in some other way. Wow. Wild, wild stuff. We're going to have to do a part two sometime. But Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find the book? The book you can get wherever you buy books. So if you just Google American Exception, you'll find the Skyhorse page and it'll link to Barnes and Noble or Amazon or uh, a couple other places. And I also run the American Exception podcast on Patreon. We're doing a series to accompany the book. Uh, Ben Norton and I are going to do that together. And uh, I have a lot of other material, interviews with people like uh, Ellsberg, Peter Dale Scott, David Talbot, uh, stuff that deals with the um, hidden history of the United States and the criminal nature of the U.S. empire. Uh, American Exception, please check it out. Thank you so much for joining us, Aaron. Thank you, guys. Folks, have a good one. Peace. Like what you hear? Want to hear more? Check us out at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus or struggle session.substack.com for all our public episodes, commercial free, as well as hundreds of bonus episodes. Thank you to all our listeners for holding us down five years strong.